For this episode today, we're looking at the interwar period, which is the time period between World War One and World War Two, so 1919 to 1939. And guys, there is a lot going on. We're going to first start out with the Paris Peace Conference that goes from 1919 to 1920 and ultimately is going to give us the Treaty of Versailles. Now, the world was tasked with a monumental feat of rebuilding the world in international relations after World War One. Anger, resentment were guiding emotions of this conference. Wilson's 14 points were going to be used, or at least that's what uh, the Germans thought, um, as to the guiding principles of the Treaty of Versailles at the Paris Peace Conference. Wilson's 14 points would have dealt with a lot of the long-term causes of World War I, such as militarization, the alliance system, dealing with some of the imperialist claims, and nationalism. However, a lot of Wilson's 14 points, well, all of Wilson's 14 points were ignored, except one, which was the League of Nations. Ultimately, what comes out of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany has to claim full guilt for the start of World War I breaking out. Also, Germany has exponentially high reparation payments that they're responsible for. This comes down to France wanting to protect its own national security and make Germany so crippled that they could never reinvest in their military capabilities. Also, out of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany is restricted to only 100,000 men in their military. They're not allowed to have an alliance with Austria, which is known as the Prevention of Anschluss, so they can't have an alliance between Germany and Austria anymore. The region known as the Rhineland is demilitarized, which is a zone right by the German and the French border. So Germany would not be able to have any military equipment or personnel there. The Saar Valley would be under French occupation, which would be a mandate from the League of Nations. And this really just crippled Germany's ability to function in the 1920s. This created a lot of tension and insurmountable economic hardship for a lot of the losers of World War One, and this would contribute to the perpetuating problems of the 1920s. Now, looking at some of the international relations between the major powers during this time period, Britain and France, they are not on the same page far as how harsh to be on Germany. Britain wants to hold Germany accountable, but they can't have them so crippled that Germany's economy is not able to function because Britain relied on Germany as a trading partner, whereas France, their main motivation is national security. From the French perspective, Germany had invaded them twice in the past 50 years with the Franco-Prussian War and World War One. Germany had challenged French occupation of Morocco, and France also was um, still fearful that the fact that Germany had created the alliance system. One of the main goals of that alliance system was to isolate France. Germany had also created the Schlieffen Plan, which was a military strategy specifically targeted towards France. So, from the French perspective, they really just needed national security. Far as Japan goes, we're going to start seeing this ever so slowly drift from uh, Japan moving away from the Western powers. Um, this can be contributed to the fact that Japan is never seen as a full equal in the eyes of the West. For instance, when Japan issues the 21 demands to China in 1915, by the time we get to the Paris Peace Conference, that's going to be whittled down 
um, to really only 13 uh, demands that are going to be met from the Japanese perspective. And really it boils down to the West wanted to protect their economic interest in China. The other problem that Japan is going to have is that they asked for a racial equity clause to be included in the League of Nations covenant, and that's going to be denied because a lot of the Western powers were not willing to see all races as equals because that would have really messed up their colonial claims that they had throughout the globe. Now, far as the Russia goes or the Soviets that we're going to start transitioning to calling them at this point, the Soviets are not invited to the Paris Peace Conference because they had their communist Bolshevik revolution in 1917. Um, a lot of powers like Britain and France are highly suspicious of the Soviets for twofold. Number one, the Soviets want to have a global worldwide communist revolution. And once the Soviets tapped out of the middle of World War One, that left Britain and France high and dry in the middle of a world war. So um, the USSR is not welcomed into the international community and no one is willing to recognize the Bolshevik government uh, in 1920. Far as the United States goes, they are going to um, reclaim isolationism and the U.S. kind of wants to just retreat back to the mainland and just deal with American problems and you know get their economy going from post-World War One. The United States is not going to ratify the Treaty of Versailles or join the League of Nations and predominantly because America's foreign policy is isolationism so Europe has to deal with all of Europe's problems and America just wants to deal with American problems. Now, Germany, they are completely humiliated, devastated from the loss of World War I, and we're going to see a lot of problems emerge throughout the 1920s as this continues on. And that's gonna start bringing us into the conferences and treaties. So German reparations are going to be incredibly problematic. We're going to see the Genoa Conference, the Dawes Plan, as well as the Young Plan, all dealing with German reparations. Before we get there, though, I want to go to the Washington Naval Conference of 1921 to 1922. And this is going to be some strong momentum in the global powers beginning to demilitarize themselves. So Britain, Japan, the United States, the three major naval powers on the planet are going to decrease their navy to a three to five ratio. And what that means is that Britain and America are going to be able to have larger navies than Japan, but it signifies that all three of these powers are willing to decrease their naval capabilities. The other thing that it's going to do is limit the types of ships or the, the capability of the ships that these countries have. Also, Britain, France, Japan, the United States, they're going to enter the Four Power Treaties Agreement under the Washington Naval Conference. And this is where they are going to um, protect any of the interests that these countries might have in China, as well as the Nine Powers Treaties, where they're going to protect China from any uh, foreign invasion, which just goes to show us that um, countries still see China as a valuable market. The Washington Naval Conference is essentially going to end the Anglo-Japanese alliance because um, there doesn't want to be any definitive ties 
between Britain and Japan in case the United States gets into a fight with Japan because the United States and Japan are beginning to bump heads in the Pacific. So Britain does not want to fully back Japan because that means they might have to fight the United States and no one wants that in the 1920s. So the Washington Naval Conference is a good sign of demilitarization, but we also have to acknowledge that you know, these major powers would have decreased their Navy capacities anyways post-World War I because they're not in the middle of a global conflict. Now, I talked about how German reparations were becoming so problematic, and we see that as early as 1922, where Germany is just completely unable to make their reparation payments. France is getting agitated, and so the British Prime Minister decides to try and call a conference in Genoa, Italy to deal with these uh, particular financial problems. Well, the United States decides that they're not going to join this Genoa conference because that is a European problem. America doesn't want to attend. Germany's going to give it a go. They're going to go to this conference but quickly leave and exit the conference because France is completely unwilling to compromise. At that point, the Soviets withdraw because they're feeling increasingly isolated and they feel that if they can make a workable agreement with Germany and the Soviets, that that would benefit them in the long run. So the Genoa Conference superficially happens without the United States, without Germany, and without the Soviets. However, Germany and the USSR, they create the Treaty of Rapallo of 1922 this is where they're going to recognize each other's governments, create a trading agreement, and some military cooperation. This is going to be beneficial for these two countries because they are ostracized in the continent of Europe and for the world as a whole. And so you really cannot afford to be a lone country in the 1920s. So the Treaty of Rapallo is going to be established in 1922. Now, did the German reparations get taken care of? Absolutely not. So we're going to see that particular problem escalate with the invasion of the Ruhr in 1923. This is where France is going to unilaterally, by themselves, invade Germany, and they're going to occupy the Ruhr region. This area is particularly industrialized, and this is how France thinks that they're going to get their money for the reparations. The problem is, is they didn't inform any of the other major powers that this was happening, and this just sends the German economy off into a cliff. And that is also going to have ripple effects for economies like Britain. And so this is going to escalate the situation of German reparations into a possible world war. No one is really wanting to go to war in 1923. So something uh, has to be done about the German reparations. And that's going to lead us to the Dawes Plan of 1924. This is where we're going to see some relief for German reparations. What's going to be agreed upon is that the United States is going to provide loans to Germany. Now, this is a big deal because in 1924, the United States is still claiming isolationism, but they feel compelled that they have to get involved in these European affairs because things are escalating so much 
that France just invaded Germany, and like I said before, no one wants a world war. So the United States does feel compelled that they have to get involved. The United States economy is one that can sustain giving out loans, and this should kind of mitigate a lot of the problems that are surrounding German reparations. So the U.S. is going to give loans to Germany, Germany is then going to make reparation payments to Britain and France, and then Britain and France are going to pay back their World War I debt to the United States. All of this is happening in a triangular, circular motion dependent on the United States loaning this money to Germany. Now, in the immediate terms, this does fix things, and we're able to move beyond just German reparations by 1925. We're going to have the Locarno Treaties of 1925, and this is for the first time post-World War I going to see a real spirit of compromise between the Germans and the French. And we're going to have the agreement that Belgium, France, and Germany are all going to recognize each other's borders, that if there are problems among those three countries, they're going to handle them diplomatically, not through war. So that's really good. The other big thing that's going to happen here is that Britain and Italy are going to give France some reassurance for their national security, saying that, listen, France, if you get into a conflict, we will be able to support you. Germany, they're going to accept the permanent loss of Alsace-Lorraine because that territory is incredibly valuable. Alsace-Lorraine is a region that had been going back and forth between France and Germany as early as the Franco-Prussian War. So now we can put that to rest. Germany recognizes, okay, we don't have Alsace-Lorraine anymore. And this is going to be significant because, like I said, they're moving beyond just the issues of um, German reparations. The Locarno Treaties are so impactful that there is discussion that Germany would be able to enter the League of Nations, and that actually happens in 1926. So Europe welcomes the Locarno Treaties as a true sign of peace and that the continent can move forward, and they're all feeling so nice and secure that they're going to make the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. Now. This is an ideological concept that 65 countries are going to sign on and they're all going to renounce war. And this sounds fantastic. We're going to say no more war. But the limitation of the Kellogg-Briand Pact is that there is no binding document. With that being said, that is enticing to the United States and the U.S. is going to be one of the 65 nations that signs on to the Kellogg-Briand Pact because there is no binding document. Whereas the Treaty of Versailles, the U.S. wanted nothing to do with that because that included the League of Nations, where the League of Nations included the Covenant. The Covenant was a binding document that would have dictated to countries what they could and could not do. From the United States' perspective, they only wanted to operate off of the U.S. Constitution. So the Kellogg-Briand Pact gave the United States that flexibility of you know, being part of this international agreement, but with no supplemental binding document. Now, by 1929, things are still problematic with the German reparations, and because we had seen such significant progress with the Locarno Treaties, Germany being part of the League of Nations now, um, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, there is some true movement in the willing, uh, willingness of France to compromise. So we get to the Young Plan of 1929. The United States is going to continue its loans to Germany, but then also 
Germany's overall amount that they're responsible for for the German reparations or the World War I reparations are going to get reduced from $6.6 billion down to $2.2 billion. Because at this point, the French had kind of realized like, okay, we might have been a little too harsh at that point. And so this would be beneficial for all if we decrease the overall amount that, Germany's, that Germany is responsible for. Now, the problem with the Dawes plan and the Young plan is that the entire world put all of their eggs in one basket, and that was on the United States. So if anything catastrophically happened to the American economy, it had the threat of taking down the entire globe, particularly these plans with German reparations. And that is exactly what happened. So we have the Great Depression of 1929 and the United States is no longer able to supply those loans. Now, this is going to be catastrophic because we see a clear before and after picture of uh, hope and prospects of things getting better. By 1931-1932, uh, things have just gone into economic chaos and the rise of extremism and authoritarianism is growing on the continent of Europe because things are getting desperate. And so um, Adolf Hitler is going to come into power within the German government. He's going to be a representative at the World Disarmament Conference, which is held between 1931 and 1932. The main objective was for the international community to decrease their military capabilities. The only country that truly had disarmed themselves throughout the 1920s was Germany, and that was done by force, not by a willingness. And so as things are becoming more extreme, it is very apparent that countries like France, Britain, the United States are unwilling to give up their military capabilities. Uh, France is unwilling to disarm itself because it's worried that it might have to protect itself from Germany and U.S. and Britain were not willing to give their full-fledged support to France. So that makes France uncompromising. Hitler just calls out the entire international community and he withdraws Germany from the disarmament conference as well as the League of Nations. Japan is eventually going to uh, leave the League of Nations over their invasion of Manchuria in 1931. So by the time we get to the World Disarmament Conference, it is very clear and evident that all of the progress made throughout the 1920s was essentially superficial that as long as things were copacetic and even keeled and improving that France and Britain and America and Japan would be playing nice but understandably so that when things got really difficult that that true progress was not there that it's ultimately mistrust of each other's countries and nationalism were at play and so the World Disarmament Conference ends in complete disarray and so when we look at how effective were these plans throughout the 1920s, they were largely ineffective because we do get World War II. At the very onset of the 1920s, the Treaty of Versailles was so incredibly harsh that the Paris Peace Conference really should have been called the Paris Revenge Conference and that any of this progress made was always dependent on these countries backing one another up, such as France needing Britain and America to wholeheartedly have their backs. 
And then you have the whole Soviet dynamic that the threat of communism spreading throughout the globe was real at this time. The USSR sent delegates throughout all of the major cities trying to get communism to take root in these capitalistic nations. And so um, as economies were faltering, the fact that they might turn to communism as a solution was very, very real. And the fact that the major powers aren't all on the same page is problematic. The fact that you have Japan starting to leave the West and mistrusting the West's motivation is really going to see a different dynamic play out for World War II. And then it's just fair enough to say that the Great Depression threw off all the hopes of anything getting truly better in Europe and for the globe as that plays out. And that's ultimately what's going to lead us to World War II with Hitler coming into power and him just completely disregarding any measures that the Treaty of Versailles withheld and no longer willing to work with the international community.